0: You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags.
1: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature.
3: Ooh. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready. Are you ready to get your mind blown?
2: Do it! One, two, three, four.
4: Indie rock pioneer Bob Mold has experienced all the ups and downs of
3: rock and roll life, and he's lived to tell about it. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune, and I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We look back at the end of Husker Du and the beginning of Bob Mould's solo career. Plus we review the new album from producer and rock innovator Brian Eno. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions and time now for some music news. Party, party
4: that is party rock anthem by lmfao the most popular tune on the spotify music service spotify we've been talking about it for a few years on sound opinions it debuted in sweden in 2008 it is finally here in the united states a long arduous journey to get all the licensing cleared up those are the big hurdles here it had to get the big labels behind it now interesting question here. Here is a service that was perfectly willing to pay artists and labels to make digital music widely available to consumers, and yet it took them three years to get here. They are finally here with a three-tier plan. One is to offer free ad-supported music to consumers. You can test it out without putting any money down. Then there's a basic ad-free version for five bucks a month, and then your premium service for 10 bucks a month that allows you to access your music on your mobile phone. Also, higher audio quality and other perks. Now, in the time that Spotify has been trying to clear all these licenses and get artists paid, you've got services like Rhapsody, RDO, and Mog already doing that in the United States. So can Spotify create a niche in the United States the way it has in Europe, where it dominates 10 million registered users, 1.6 million of them paid subscribers. It remains to be seen, though, with all the competition here, whether they can make the same kind of impact in the United States.
2: I know you can't take it
3: That is Head Like a Hole from Nine Inch Nails' 1989 album, Pretty Hate Machine. What a great track, Greg. But Trent Reznor, the guiding light of Nine Inch Nails, is apparently not so happy with a reissue of Pretty Hate Machine that came out some months ago. But he just recently tweeted. It got under his skin. Mm -hmm. He tweeted, Nine Inch Nails fans, don't waste your money on this version of Pretty Hate Machine that was just released. A record label BS move repackaging the old version. Ignore. Please. Always interesting when you see a star of that caliber, someone who sold so many records, saying to his fan base, Don't buy this version of my recording. Obviously, still proud of that. Record, mm-hmm. But, you know, the repackaging of an artist's work often does not take into consideration what the artist wants in any way, shape or form. They sign these contracts and, and buried somewhere on page 97 in fine type is that we have the right to reissue and remarket and put out new versions of Your material. Now, some bands have no problem with this. U2 seems to be very happy with an upcoming 20th anniversary reissue of Aktung Baby, a deluxe package. Says The Edge, there's some interesting alternate versions we discovered that wouldn't have seen the light of day wouldn't have seen but doesn't that mean shouldn't have it wasn't good enough the first time but paul mcginnis u2's ever industrious capitalist manager says quote if you pile a lot of extra material and packaging and design work into a super duper (laughs) box set there are people who will pay quite a lot for it how how greedy can you be nirvana you know it's been 20 years since nevermind came out we're going to see a deluxe reissue In September, four CDs and one DVD. This is a band that recorded three albums before Kurt Cobain died. Where is all this extra stuff? There's some BBC radio stuff. There's some rarities. Never mind. There's already been several Nirvana box sets and several rarities collections. You and I both... Super fans of this group. I can't imagine there's enough to justify this. This is why the music industry is in trouble, Jim, because
4: they do stuff like this to consumers. They make them rebuy stuff that they already own again and again, in some cases for exorbitant prices, just to get that one or two tracks that might actually be worthwhile. But those other 28 that they're piling on, yes, there was a reason they weren't issued in the first place. Let me repeat what Trent tweeted. Ignore, please.
5: (laughs)
2: You think I got time to blow all this dope And do all these shows On flight in the Lama charging White Wolf oh another episode do I do yeah, everybody that be living it up We say What I do And all my ladies that be giving it up
4: oh. what? That's Ja Rule's Living It Up. Remember Ja Rule? Kind of a prominent hip-hop artist in the late 90s, early 2000s. Had a huge album with The Last Temptation. Also starred in several Hollywood movies then disappeared what's ja rule been up to well he's doing time apparently sad story here just sentenced to 28 months in prison for failing to file federal income taxes for returns over a five-year period apparently he owes the federal government about 1.1 million dollars on over three million dollars in income that's on top of an earlier Prison sentence. He's been sentenced to two years after pleading guilty to criminal weapon possession. So the judge took uh, pity on Ja Rule and said he could serve the sentences concurrently, but
3: Ja Rule is going away for a couple of years. Also going away, Greg, sad to say, is the Borders books and music chain. It was a two-part folding of that company. They closed down a bunch of stores a couple of months ago, and now it's officially out of business. Time had an interesting piece, uh, Time Magazine, about why it failed. Five reasons. It was too late to the web was too late to e-books, it opened too many stores, it had too much debt. Number five, most interesting for our purposes, it overinvested in music sales. It had lots of music stock and nobody's buying CDs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a victim to two revolutions in the digital technology, both books and music, and I think a real loss for American consumers. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the Hoosker Do classic, New Day Rising from 1985, one of a series of incredible albums the band recorded under the leadership of our guest this week, Bob Mould. The singer, songwriter, and guitarist has a new book out called See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody, that traces the highs and lows of his career and his life. From growing up in rural New York, to struggling with his sexual identity and alcoholism, ...to forming one of the most influential bands in rock and roll. Who's Du released a succession of significant albums in an incredibly short period of time. Zen Arcade in 84, followed by New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig, then Candy Apple Grey. They never became a household band, but you can hear the legacy in countless other groups... ...including Nirvana, The Foo Fighters, R.E.M., with Mold on Guitar... Co-songwriter Grant Hart on drums and Greg Norton on bass, the band took punk velocity and pop craftsmanship to superhuman levels. But the personal relationships proved to be toxic. There was competition, there was addiction, there was egotism. It's for that reason that Mold rarely discusses Husker Du, but he sat down with us in the studio to look back at this time and to talk about dissolving the band and then, just as important, going out on his own. It was a really dramatic period, with the final album Warehouse in 1987 and then Bob Mold's nervous debut as a solo artist in 1989. So we started by asking Bob if he saw the burnout coming with Husker Du.
5: I didn't see burnout coming. Um, I mean, to go back to that really prolific period you know, with with Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, Flip Your Wig. I grew up on '60s bands. You know, I grew up on the Beatles, who put out albums every six months. You know, the transition to Warner Brothers and sort of how that changed the dynamic of the band. I think that is more important than any kind of burnout factor. Grant Hart, the uh, the drummer and the other songwriter in the band. You know, Grant and I could crank songs out pretty quickly when you get to warehouse in the summer of 86 fall of 86 the conception and recording of it you know i think what what used to be very healthy competition for the greater good became you know it became rather contentious and in the book i touch on a couple things let me make an analogy when husker du was a smaller band on an indie label before the spotlight you know we were just It's like this flashlight was on a band, and you're all clustered together closely, and you know, you're sort of in the light together, and you know, you get a floodlight like Warner Brothers, and Mm -hmm. you know, the lights spread out, and people can scatter. People can try to get in the front of the light at the expense of others, and I think it's natural. It's not like, "Wow, wow, you know, we were really competing consciously. That's one part of it. There was a lot of passive aggression going on between myself and Grant. You know, I made a what in hindsight might have been sort of a, a not a fatal error but critical error when we were recording New Day Rising Grant presented a song called 2541 and we were playing it and i heard it and it sounded exactly like another song by a, a contemporaries of ours the dream syndicate at the mm. time Pointed it out and said, you know, maybe we should pass on this one. And I think the song meant a lot to Grant, as witnessed by, you know, it was his first volley after the band broke up. Yeah. And one of his best songs, you Mm. know. So, you know, maybe by saying that, I had sort of started a spiral. You know, that's how life works with everybody. You say something, a little bit of toothpaste spills out, and all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, you really can't brush (laughs) your teeth anymore. Mm. (laughs) Going back to the the period, the conception of warehouse, and everybody's making some big life changes. I was 25 years old. I had been drinking every day for many, many years. Since was 13, right? Or yeah, 12? since I was 13, I, I realized I had to stop. And in this business, that can really change the dynamic of a band, where a person stands in the community, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Greg made some changes too. Greg was uh withdrawing from the band as well. He had gotten married, moved down to Red Wing, which was about an hour southeast of Minneapolis, opened up a record store and started living a very different lifestyle. you know where I think he was swinging a golf club more than he was a bass guitar
0: mm-hmm.
5: Grant got uh got a new guy in his life, got some you know started hanging out with some other bands that maybe weren't the best influence to be around, and he made some choices. I didn't know about those choices until much much later Hmm. i was pretty blind to things you know i i had my hands full at the beginning of 1987 when warehouse came out there was a you know our uh, person who worked with us in the office david savoy you know committed suicide on the eve of the warehouse tour which was pretty uh pretty lousy thing
3: i had hit everybody in the indie rock world really hard because in the early days he traveled with you everybody seemed to know him i knew him
5: yeah dave was a great guy and um I did not handle it really well. I just went into panic mode and uh, it was not good. Mm. I think Grant had already, you know, in hindsight, I know he his new habits were already in in effect at that
3: point. Well, and just to be clear, we're talking about heroin with Grant yeah. and alcoholism with you.
5: Yeah, yeah. I was clean by then, and uh, so I was sort of dealing mm-hmm. with it, you know, right in my face. And, yeah, I, I handled all that really badly. but. So life goes on, and then you know, two. We sort of have to take two weeks to regroup, and then go out and do this big tour around the country to promote this double album, which was more or less two solo records.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: It seemed like, as you said, the competition was between you and Grant for space on these records. This was this was pretty much close to a fifty-fifty split, if yep. I'm not mistaken. Did you find yourself contributing less and less to Grant's songs and vice versa at this point? Was mm. there absolutely no input, or, or how, how no, did that no. work at I mean,
5: point? We had, bec- we had become a, such a machine by that point. We'd get our basic tracks down, and then I would do guitar solos, and if we needed to fill in more space with guitars, I'd add stuff. And then Grant would take it away and do whatever he was going to do to it, and if he wanted background vocals, he would say, you want to sing on this, and I'd come in and do something. And I wasn't in there a whole lot when Grant was doing his tinkering. So I didn't know what was going on. and I knew he was spending a lot of extra time in the studio trying stuff. Um, you know, I was a little more workmanlike. I just wanted to get it done and get out of there. Because
4: mm-hmm. basically you and Grant were co-producing the record, Steve Fjellstedt was, was engineering. Right. But you were running the ball. Here, here you are making a major label double album, and you still had an incredible amount of control over yeah. the kind of music you were putting out, which is
5: pretty rare, it seemed like. Yeah, you know, we were feeling... Subtle pressure from Warners on Warehouse. They wanted a cleaner sound. You'll get a situation where, like, the head of the AOR department will go to your A&R person and say, you know, Karen Berg, if you go to this band and you just tell them, you know, tone the cymbal noise down a little bit and just get the vocals up higher, I mean, we're going to sell a million records. <laughs> Karen Berg was an incredibly gifted person in the music business. It was, her passing was was really a few years ago was a very sad, sad occasion her her history in the business and she was a publicist at Electra and worked with Joni Mitchell and you know all I mean Electra was such a pivotal label in the in the industry and then you know she went over to Warners and gosh she worked with television yeah. and mm-hmm. B52s Marshall Crenshaw she signed REM but she was getting pressure too and she had to bring it to us I mean it, she, it, it, that was her job
3: well, I think the, for younger listeners who don't have the context it's important to remember you know Why did they sign Husker du if they didn't want him to si- sound like Husker du? But there was this uncertainty before the alternative explosion about what could come up from the underground into the mainstream. Well, R.E.M. had done it. What's the matter with you guys? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. And this is before the Internet. This is before a lot of things that we take for granted now that are just part and parcel of how we digest and access music. We had to try to do what we could do to not compromise our vision, but to conform a little bit. And that's just the way it was in 1987. Well, could you be the one they talk about? Well, hiding inside, behind another door. Well, is it all the happiness you want? Is wanting a
2: feeling already more. It doesn't mean that much to me. Sometimes I don't mean that much to you. And I don't even know why.
4: We've got more with Bob Mould coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But first, we want to remind you to leave your Sound Opinions on the air. Talk about Husker Du, Bob Mould or anything in the rock universe at 888-859-1800. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. You've been listening to our conversation with Bob Mould. He's got a new book out called See a Little Light that chronicles his life and career as a member of Husker Du and Sugar, as well as a solo artist. And in each incarnation, he's been hugely influential in the rock world. But we specifically wanted to talk to him about this dramatic shift from being a singer, songwriter, and guitarist in Husker Du to going out on his own. Now, along with Grant Hart on drums and Greg Norton on bass... Hooskerdoo worked at a frantic pace. I mean, you think about the series of albums they produced between 84 and 87, including Zen Arcade and New Day Rising, and they seemed to be on the cusp of mainstream success once they signed to Warner Brothers Records. But within a couple of years, by early 88, the band was no more. Bob Mould had walked away. Now, he would reemerge later on with success, but there's no denying Hooskerdoo's dynamic when it was at its peak. What I was hearing, Bob, is especially seeing you guys live, you had this guitar sound that you sounded like three guitar players. Yep. And Grant was not a timekeeper in a traditional sense. He was more, I heard more of a jazz drumming approach with him. A lot of crash cymbal. And that's where you're talking about this kind of very splashy high-end thing yeah. that was going on right
3: riding the crash symbol a sound we would soon yeah. hear with this other band from seattle right? oh yeah yeah
1: you mm-hmm. think
3: mm-hmm. nirvana oh yeah Do you okay. think dave Grohl ever yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> maybe right. yeah i mean Grant had a great style also he's a big fan of surf music mm-hmm. a lot of sort of agitated ride you know getting up on the mm-hmm. bell and and then really getting the heat going on the ride symbol at the key moments. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was very much the band was auto glide and, and mm-hmm. it was like this chase all the time. You know, if Grant picked it up a little bit, I'd want to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Then he'd want to get ahead. And then, I mean, that had a lot to do with this, with the speed of the band, you know, and it just kept picking up and up and up. Around New Day Rising, when we started writing the more contemplative songs, there were moments where things tempered and, and came down and were more solid. And the sun disintegrates a wall of clouds. In the summer
2: where I winter at, no one is allowed there.
5: And then I, I think around Candy Apple Gray, you really hear a change in the band, mm-hmm. you know. And in Warehouse, where it was a little, you know, everything was sturdier and wasn't quite as uh, quite as risky and brisk and you know sailing along like it like it was early. Mm-hmm. In reading the book, see a little light. Your autobiography. It seems like it sort of hit you at
4: once. It, it wasn't apparent to you that Husker Du was gonna end because you were you were already projecting towards the next record. You were thinking about producers. Then there was that incident on the road, late 87, show in uh, Missouri, right?
5: Yeah, it was Columbia, Missouri at the Blue Note, yeah.
4: And it was clearly Grant couldn't play.
5: Uh, yeah. We did a North American tour for Warehouse, and then we went over to Europe and played a lot of festivals and big rooms over there. We came back and we had the summer to put together what would be the next record. We saw a break, and that was when we started to uh, write for the next record. You know, we got together and the rehearsals were terrible. I was bringing in songs, and nobody was responding well. Grant was bringing in stuff, and, you know, I I would just be like, what are we doing here? But, yeah, we went out in December. We did this final tour. We went to St. Louis, and that's where stuff started to get sort of wonky. Mm. You know, some woman showed up. I guess she brought Grant some methadone or something. Again, all this is new to me, and then this is the point where There's about 36 hours where I'm not really clear what's happening. I talked to everybody that was around, and I got a different story from everybody Mm. that was there. And this was one of the frustrations of writing this book. But the short story is that, you know, something went on in there, and somebody came to me and said, you know that Grant's been using heroin. And I'm like, really? I had no idea. Hmm. Hmm. I had no idea idea
3: but that close and working that intensely for that long i mean i had my
5: suspicions because of the people he was with but i thought come on grant's a smart guy and then i'm just like then we get to columbia missouri and terrible show we've got through the set somehow went upstairs and we're just like what's going on and and grant fessed up and i was just like we i said do you think you can make it to tomorrow and he's like yeah and i'm thinking no Mm-hmm. I said we got to get this. thing we just got to take this thing off the road and go home and take some time. Spent a few more weeks trying to figure out what to do, and then we called a meeting. You know, didn't happened at Grant's house with his family. And in the book, you know, people will will see the story. And it was a, a sort of a sad end. And that was the moment where I just sort of said, I gotta, I gotta get out of this. So I, I called up the band's attorney and said, I want you to file the leaving member papers with Warner Brothers. I am officially done.
4: must have been a stunning moment for everybody. I mean, here you were on another level, you were at this cusp of success. Everybody yeah. always said, this is the, you know, the next big band. And at the same time, you felt it was so dire, you had to walk away from it, which must have been an incredibly lonely feeling in a lot of ways, saying, okay, yeah. I'm going to step away from this and do something completely un." You didn't have any idea what you were going to do at that point.
5: I had no idea. And just to establish this fact for people, that singular incident was not the reason Hooskadoo ended. Right. I don't think it's fair to put that kind of heat on grant what I think happened is it was the culmination of 18 months of people really drifting apart mm. that was only a period at the end of a very long sentence
2: a pair of gorge in several bags of well, I could build a wall
5: to lean on
2: Your nails
3: into this of we're talking to Bob Mould. I'm Jim Deer Goddess. I'm with Greg Cott about his new book, See a Little Light. Bob, can you see from this point in history? You know, I mean, Greg and I have to really fight. It's rare that we're in this studio that we have to fight to be professional. But when we sit here, who's Do meant so much to the two of us in our formative years. I mean, that was the band, Thank Michael, you. who wrote the book with you. This band could be your life. Your band was our life. Thank you. Can you see from this perspective why that band meant so much to people, why we carry it as importantly as we do?
5: I think Husker Du was the best band ever, <laughs> 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 at least in the 80s. I don't think there was anybody that could touch us on any night. Yeah. We prided ourselves on being the best band, being a responsible band, being as professional as we could be inside of all that chaos, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it was it was an incredible run.
4: Well, it was a it was a physicality, the aggression, the violence. Just the you know, it was all out all the time. Mm-hmm. There was no let up, and then the silence. You're up in the farm. Wow. In wow. You know, in 1988, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. there's nothing. It's quiet. The band is over. Talk about going doing a 180.
5: Yeah, it from that crazy cacophony to Total silence. I had bought a 10 acres of land that had an old brick farmhouse and some outbuildings, and I basically went up there and just sat. And I, you know, i had to do a lot of soul searching and, and trying to find a new way to express myself. In '87, some of the songs that I had written that didn't see the light of day, obviously at that time, you know, I, I was thinking about strings, I was thinking about cellos, I was thinking about horns. Just different ways to to broaden the you know the tonal palette. Now left to my own devices, I could experiment with those things. Mm-hmm. Of all the nonsense I tried, the one that resonated was the cello. The cello is the is, is the instrument that is the closest to the human voice because it breathes and it has that that vibrational sound like a like a windpipe. Mm. So that was the one that I started building songs with. You know, I bought a new guitar, I bought the blue strat which is my go-to guitar to this day. That guitar really opened up a whole new world for me. That and a 12-string guitar that I'd bought in Boston. Mm. I started messing with a lot of alternate tunings. And I remember a a point Dave Ayers, who worked at Twin Tone, and I played a couple songs for Dave and he uh he said, "Have you ever heard of this guy named Richard Thompson?" Mm-hmm. You know, Richard Thompson's an amazing player and composer, just a, one of the, the real legends of contemporary music. And I had not heard Richard's stuff. I was not familiar with Fairport Convention. I was not wow. familiar with any of those records. Hmm.
3: How old are you at this point?
5: 27. Yeah. Wow. And I said, no. And he said, well, and then he like started playing me stuff, you know, all these songs. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, Great.
3: I'm, I'm heard. ripping off
5: this guy I've never heard before so I was, I was a little self-conscious but you know I thought about it and I just said what am I going to do bag this new thing that I'm really excited about because it sounds like this other guy a little bit you know so go with it and you know listen to the records and then just continued on with the writing and, and creating of the foundation for workbook
4: you were inventing a new way of playing music it seemed like going from that power trio thing to the solo approach bag of dimes you call that tone that you were oh, getting that, on the
5: 12 string yeah because yeah. it was just sort of janky all the overtones that I was used to you know with the distortion plus box that I used in Who's to get all that overring now I was getting it out of just sort of playing hard on this 12 string guitar and I was like really fascinated by just the amount of shimmer and sparkle that I could generate you know without using any pedals I would say probably Brasilia was the was the one that really had the overring
4: People were stunned when that record came out. I I, I don't think anybody
5: expected Workbook out of you. Definitely a different artist.
3: Talking to Bob Mold on Sound Opinions. Two questions I always wanted to ask about Workbook Bob. Number one, what the hell is Brasilia crossed with Trenton about? Um, I I love that lyric.
5: I woke up one morning and Mm. literally wrote that thing in the shower. Mm. It was like dreams that I had had the night before. I talk about the no buildings over two stories high, obviously, you know, that refers to the farm and just the downtown of Pine City where I lived. It was, you know, just one of those traditional, you know, sort of mercantile one flashing stop sign in the middle of the town square and the feed store yeah the feed store yeah it was literally just the reciting of a dream that's why the, there's such a simplicity to the music it's only the three chords if i wanted to dig in a little bit you know brazilia is these dreams of exotic places but mm. you end up in trenton <laughs> you know and no knock on trenton because i, I ended up there many many times
3: I wanted to ask was about that band. It seemed like you'd put so much thought into it. Anton Fear had been the drummer for the Feelys in in New Jersey and had played with the Golden Palominos and you know he was a monster. He, Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis. Rocket. One of the only white drummers ever to play with Miles Davis. And Tony Mammoni, such a virtuoso from Perubu and I was such a fan of them too. Unbelievable. God. And Jane Scarpentoni on cello, too. These were all um, virtuosic musicians, but they came from the punk world, and they had the avant-garde sensibility. Yeah. It almost seemed to me as if, like, talk about your, your dream team, you know? Yeah,
5: yeah. And and also in 89, when touring, you know, the first time around was Chris Stamey. Right. You know, no slouch TVs. himself. <laughs> he played with yeah.
3: Alex Chilton, an yeah. incredible
5: guitar player. Yeah, and, and Chris was, you know, Chris had one of the early synthesizer guitars, so he was playing the cello lines on some of the songs, you know, when we played live. I was very fortunate to surround myself with some great players. Anton again had been suggested for producing the 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 Hooskers record that never happened. Mm. And uh, he suggested Tony, and you know that was a great rhythm section to build with, and and Chris, and then Jim Harry, who came in and played guitar later in the year, who was at the time creating RuPaul Supermodel mm-hmm. in his loft, you know, <laughs> over by Port Authority. <laughs> so it was, you know, we had a lot of yeah, it was a lot, it was a great time, a lot of great players. And uh, was
3: that a different feeling to have that oh, much yeah, power yeah, yeah. behind well, you?
5: Well, I mean, hold up, Anton's playing to Grant's. Yeah. They're both amazing drummers, but it's a completely different feel. Anton will throw. A house at you If you try to speed up Yeah yeah. You just feel it on stage It's just like You just feel like You're going to get hit In the back of the head With something (laughs) Which was so opposite From that rushing Back and forth with Grant was just this meat and potatoes player and his job was to watch anton's right foot mm. so that every time he stroked a string was the exact moment that anton kicked that bass drum Husker Du didn't play like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was just it was you know instead of this you know this race to the finish it was this slow steady methodical powerful approach and when the low end is in phase on stage like that it's just rumbling you know it's not like a it's the difference between a plane taking off and you know, you know, an earthquake happening. It's really a different, different feel completely. So yeah, I mean, I learned a different kind of power with it.
4: You also opened the album with an instrumental sunspots yeah. finger picking. Yeah, another thing,
5: acoustic finger picking. Yeah, I'm not so good at that these days, but yes, I was good then. <laughs> but it
4: set you up because you started doing acoustic shows as well yeah, around yeah. this time. You did one in California, I believe, in that first go round.
5: Uh, McCabe's. Post- yeah, yeah, that was the first time I ever did that.
4: So talk a little bit about that. I mean you taught yourself a lot of stuff in this year and the finger picking was just I'm gonna pick this thing up and I'm gonna teach myself how to do um,
5: it. yeah, I felt I felt like I was like not a good player because I couldn't do it. You know, I'm just like, come on, people learn this playing banjo in, you know, grade school. Why didn't I pick up on this? There was no finger picking on the first Ramones albums. It's, <laughs> you know, so I guess that's that would be my excuse. Yeah, it's just a it was a way to try to branch out a little bit and it's an avenue that yielded some nice results, sunspots in particular. <laughs> It's an avenue i didn't get too far down you know because i quickly went back to just bashing the thing you know a couple years later Mm -hmm. but uh, it was a real curveball and i knew by putting that at the front of the record it was very much a statement of intent did you feel any different i mean take us back to your first shows with
4: husker du and now your first shows as bob old solo artist
5: the first show at maxwell's in 89 with this band was the most terrifying show of my life at the beginning of Husker Do, I had no idea what anything was. Mm. You know, all I was doing at 18 was emulating the things I loved and I saw. You know, I was emulating the Ramones and the Suicide Commandos. A couple of years into Huskers, I sort of got my focus and realized that I could change things with music. But go forward to 89, um, people had not seen, they had heard workbook, they had not seen workbook. Mm. So, you know, when I went up on that stage, I'm 60 pounds lighter I've let my hair grow a little bit. It's a whole new sound, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was scared out of my skull.
4: <laughs> so in the book you write uh, about this period, we're coming out of this big transition. We're, we're talking about late 89 now. You moved from Minnesota to the East Coast. Yeah. I'd closed up a six-year relationship. You'd ended your, the relationship you had in Minnesota. Yeah. Left the town where I'd lived for 11 years and fallen in love with someone new yeah. who, who, was, who would be your partner for the next decade or so. Yeah and put out a solo record that hey people liked it Uh (laughs) they actually accepted you as a solo artist at the end of this you must have felt like you know as the book says see a little light maybe there was a little light at the end yeah definitely
5: I mean it um yeah I mean personally I'd gone through a lot in 89 you know the the making of the record took me out to the east coast the farm was sort of you know I just felt so isolated up there I wanted to be with Mike so I put the farm up for sale and moved back down to the building he was living in, in a different space, and very quickly found out that he had already created a new life for himself, and I was not going to be part of it. And once we closed that up, I, within a week of formally closing up our relationship, I had no band in Minnesota. I had no partner in Minnesota, so I just picked up and moved to Hoboken. That was where I was meant to be. You know, within three weeks of being single and hanging out at Maxwell's every night, I met a fellow named Kevin O'Neill. We met one night and joked about how neither one of us wanted to be in a relationship, that they were terrible. And, you know, by the next morning, we were in a relationship. (laughs) So uh, that was the beginning of 14 pretty wild years. Mm. Wild ride through Sugar, through solo records, through Dog and Pony, through Modulate. And then, boom, that ended. But, you know, I went from, you know, this isolated, what am I going to do existence to making this pretty great record that redefined redefined who I was and was the the real beginning of my own career
4: mom once again it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on sound opinions
5: thanks you guys thanks for having me as always
3: To hear our 2008 interview with Bob Mould, visit soundopinions.org. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we visit the desert island. And Sound Opinions drinking game players, get ready. We're going to review the latest from Brian Eno.
1: The system outside the brain flow out shells meltdown explode in the main code.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis and I am pleased to announce that we are about to talk about Brian Eno yet again on this show. It is Jim's hero, we all know. That's a track called Glitch from the new Eno album Drums Between the Bells. It's a collaboration with poet Rick Holland, Eno does most of the work here. He's uh, doing most of the instrumentation. He's doing some of the vocals. He's brought in a few guest vocalists to read the poetry of Holland. He was primarily interested in Holland and the text and the possibilities that that offered from a sonic standpoint. More than 20 solo recordings by Eno. How do you summarize this man's career in a few short sentences? But the short story is Eno went to art school, minimally trained in music revolutionized a art rock band out of england called roxy music alongside brian ferry left that band to pursue a solo career his song-oriented vocal-oriented records here come the warm jets and taking tiger mountain by strategy in the mid-70s were mind-blowingly great then went on to make a series of instrumental recordings ambient music as he called them concurrent with that working as a producer and collaborator with talking heads debut of devo the David Bowie Berlin trilogy, U2 in the 80s and 90s, most recently with Coldplay. He's been collaborating with that huge British band. The new record is called Drums Between the Bells, Brian Eno and Rick Holland. Here's a track from it on Sound Opinions.
0: All and-
3: The new album, Drums Between the Bells on Sound Opinions. And Mr. Kai. all that blather up top about, you would think I'm a slavish devotee of Eno's. You know, know Well, I champion Eno at his best. I have never said Eno is infallible. It's interesting that this is on Warp because there are so many children of Eno making more innovative music for that label now than he is himself. The problem with this record is if we just had the instrumentals and it's Eno really playing everything himself, including the percussion as well as the synthesizers, I think I'd be enjoying it a lot more. But having these people, I I gather these are all people in his everyday life. I don't know if it's his mailman or the laundry woman or whatever. He had them read these poems of Rick Holland, which are all about coming to terms with the alienation of the digital universe okay that's a subject i'm down with but the red poetry versus the interesting instrumental backings doesn't really work for me This is a guy with an incredible voice, and he seems at 63 to be afraid to sing anymore, and he has been saying in interviews how he hates lyrics. I don't think there's anything wrong with a pop song, and he's spent his life helping other artists make really interesting ones, but he seems hesitant to make them himself anymore. This is a perfectly okay album. On the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, that puts it at a burn it.
4: Wow, Jim, without an unqualified endorsement of a new Eno record, I am I am shocked.
3: I've been mixed before. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a critic
4: here. Well, there you go. You're acting like a critic, and i got to say, I, I agree with you on this. I, I don't think it's Eno's best work by a long shot. I do hear elements of the record he did with David Byrne uh, decades ago, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, where they would take those preachers that they would hear over gospel radio stations and integrate them with their own music. He's doing something similar here, where he's taking these very deadpan readings of this poetry about the alienating effects of technology and using it as a sonic element. It's an interesting experiment. There are moments where it really works well. There are other moments where it's a little bit dry. And You're right. They're not vocalists, and you can hear that and you wonder what a real vocalist or somebody with a real personality might have been able to bring to these tracks like Eno for example but I do like what he's doing with the drums and I would love to see him do a little bit more work in this rhythmic area because I think that's the most interesting part of this record the way he warps and glitches some of those rhythm tracks but as it is on the buy it burn it trash it scale it's a burn it for me as well I
2: tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched Remember, we were shipwrecked together?
3: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the deserted island and play for you a track we can't live without. Greg, what have you got to add to the Desert Island Jukebox? Jim, I've been
4: thinking about the hip hop career of one of Chicago's most exalted rappers, that, that would be common, aka Lonnie Rashid Lynn. How great he used to be. Not so much recently. There's been a little bit of a fall-off. I think Common's been concentrating on the Hollywood career. But I was listening to some early Common the other day, and once again it hit me what a great, great piece of music his breakthrough song was. I Used to Love Her. An acronym not for a woman, but for Hearing Every Rhyme. H E R basically a four-minute mini-history of hip-hop in which a young common is looking at this art form that he so loved that spoke to him, as he says in the song, since he was 10 years old and woke him up. Now remember, this track was written and recorded in 1994. Hip-hop had just been coming out of its so-called golden age, where it seemed like every album, every single was fantastic. You had Della Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, Public Enemy, Run DMC, all putting out classic tracks one after another and then what common saw as a fall-off it went west coast it went Hollywood it went for the money the gangster rap thing was coming in and, and admittedly some really fine gangster rap tracks but what he saw was not a good trend he saw it falling off so in an extended metaphor over three verses like three chapters in a novel he encapsulates this rise and what he sees as the fall of hip-hop in his relationship with this girl the girl starts out innocent, wide-eyed. She becomes this Afrocentric philosopher using the music to express what she feels inside and then moves out to the West Coast, becomes corrupted, defiled, seduced by the money, losing her original vision. Amazingly prescient view of hip-hop. So here he is lamenting the fact that there are no more classic hip-hop tracks anymore, and yet he himself has created a hip-hop classic. It's called I Used to Love Her by Common on Sound Opinions.
2: I met this girl when I was 10 years old And what I love most, she had so much soul She was old school when I was just a shorty never knew Throughout my life she would be there for me or the regular Not a church girl, she was secular Not about the money, no stuff was my checkered up But I respected her She hit me in the heart A few New York hearts had to her in the park but she was there for me and i was there for her pull out a chair for her turn all the air for her and just cool out cool out and listen to her sitting on bone wishing that i could do eventually if it was meant to be that it would be because we related physically and mentally and she was fun then i'd be geeked when she'd come around slim was fresh joe when she was underground original pure untapping her down sister boy i tell you i miss her I guess, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. To the beach y'all, if you don't stop. I guess, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. A one, two, y'all, if you don't stop. I guess, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. A confidence, y'all, if you don't stop. I guess, yes, y'all, if you don't stop. You act, yo, we gotta be the sure shot. That's periodically the how we see. Old girl at the club, sit at the house party. She didn't have a body, but she started getting thick quick. Did a couple of videos and became Afrocentric. Out goes the weave, in goes the Braze B's medallion. She was on that tip about stopping the violence. About my people, she was teaching me. By not preaching to me, but speaking to me. In a method that was leisurely, so easily I approach. She dug my rap, that's how we got close. But then she broke to the West Coast, and I was cool. Because around the same time, I went away to school, and I'm a man. Dub expanded, so why should i stand in her way she'd probably get up money in la and she did stud she got big pub but what was foul she said that the pro black was going out of style she said Afrocentricity was of the past so she got in the r&b hip house bass and jazz now black music is black music and it's all good i wasn't salty she was with the boys in the hood because i was new for her she was becoming well-rounded i thought it was dope how she was on that freestyle just having fun
3: That is Common with I Used to Love, H-E-R, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick for the week. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Makers Mark Burman. Makers Mark, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, you and I are going to run down our favorite rock duets. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, with assistance from Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpiss. Bob Mould was recorded by Mary Gaffney. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside-Malatea. I look at my
2: tough book, I look at Look, I hate to away, took me down.
3: Don't my on Sound don't Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
0: New messages.
3: Hi, Jim and Greg. Uh, this is Travis calling from uh, Oxnard, California.
1: I was listening to your um, basically half-year review for 2011. A couple of standouts for the year so far that you didn't mention were, um, I'm really I'm really
4: enjoying the, the Oak Civilian record and that title track is just a monster. Also, I, I'm really enjoying the uh, the rural
1: Alberta advantages departing, which came out really early in the year. Both great records. I figured I'd just toss that out there. And um, yeah, thanks a lot for the podcast. You guys do great work. Hello, uh, my name is Ken Wadsworth. I'm calling from Shelbyville, Kentucky. I was calling in reference to several uh, programs, specifically the uh, Arcade Fire. It was refreshing to hear a. A group of musicians that weren't totally uh, stuck on themselves. also wanted to congratulate you on the best of 2011 so far, but I did see a glaring omission. The latest record from Death Cab for Cutie, Codes and Keys. This band just continually cranks out solid album after solid album. This is three or four in a row. Very tuneful, very... Uh, very melodic, uh, total ear candy. So really appreciate your show and look forward to listening to the podcast. Bye.
5: She may be young, but she only likes old things. And modern music, it her taste.
3: She loves the natural light. Captured in black and
1: white. Hi, guys. How you doing? It's uh, me, 12-string Frank Kong, again from Staten Island, New York. You know how much I like progressive rock, and uh, just yesterday, July twelfth, a new album came out from Yes, and the album is called Fly From Here, and it's got six songs, and one song is in six parts, and it's 20 minutes long. So it's real progressive rock stuff, and the reason I'm calling is I would hope that you guys can review it. I think, uh, I'm hoping that you'll give it a buy it. That's what I did. I bought it. Uh, if not, um, a burn it sounds good also. I don't think you'll give it a trash it. It's just too damn good. Uh, I was happy that you did trash Bon Iver. <laughs> I was very happy about that. All
3: right. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye bye.
1: Hi, this is Rob from uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I was calling about this week's show on Wax Track Records. Um, it was a neat show for me just because of my adolescent fondness for industrial music, Nine Inch Nails, and it was neat to have the mainstream crossover acts be connected to their punk roots. But the thing that I really had to call and talk about was the moment on the show where Chris Connolly was recalling riding a motorcycle down Cortland Street in Chicago and seeing all those steel foundries and how that was an inspiration for stainless steel providers. Live in Chicago and one of my best first memories was being miserable in a rainy fall and riding my bike from Logan Square to where my girlfriend lives in Lincoln Park and being absolutely awestruck and surprised by the same steel foundries on Cortland Street. Having that connected to a uh, sort of classic song and uh, industrial music gave me chill. Just a fun connecting uh, memory for me. Thanks for all the great work. Have a great week. No more messages.
4: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
0: This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag.